If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. You can do it on your phone. It's also going to be on the screen um, behind me. I have, before I read it, uh, I've got three children. Uh, My oldest is 12, a daughter in the middle who's 10, a youngest son who's 8. And when I was their age, I recall my mom going grocery shopping. This is like the mid-80s. And she comes home. Uh, a car full of groceries, and she said to me, Brian, each one of these bags of groceries is about $10. And I was like, wow, $10. And uh, just last week, I was at Superstore, and uh, I think each bag cost me about 50 bucks. Um, things have changed, uh, and, and you know, the price of groceries have, has gone up. I just have noticed that in the last couple of years for a variety of reasons. Uh, the reality is, I don't really buy less. There might be a couple things I might uh, change, but I, I don't really buy less. I just spend more. It's like if I fill my car up with gas. Like if gas went to $2.10 a liter, I'm probably not going to drive any less. I'm just, I'm just going to spend more on, on gasoline. And my point is, you know, I, God has given us enough, and actually even more than enough. And um, the World Bank, it defines extreme poverty as, list, as living on less than $2.15 a day. And as a result of the pandemic, there's been like 70 million people moved into this level of poverty. In fact, since 1990, uh, extreme poverty was decreasing all, this, all these um, organizations in the world, both Christian and non, were working together and extreme poverty was being reduced and we were making gains and then the pandemic hit and it kind of reversed it and maybe set it back 10 years. And so today there's like 719 million people or about 9% of the world's population living on less than $2.15 a day and most of the world's extreme poor are subsistence day laborers, and they do exactly as it sounds. They work, and they get paid that day, and then they go to the market and buy their food, and then they eat it, and then they do that again. And so when the pandemic happened, they were without work, and then there's no income, like literally no income. There was no CERB for them, and they have to decide, do I pay rent or do I buy food? That's the choice they have to make. And then you add to all of this... um, a war in Ukraine, and Ukraine exports enough food to feed 600 million people. They're known as the breadbasket of the world. And they also produce and export a lot of fertilizer. And now more of that is, is um, getting out of the country. The, uh, a lot of work has been done um, to make that happen. But we have a, a global food crisis on our hands. And we feel it because our food prices have gone up. But in, in countries that are really poor, they don't even have access to food. They can't even buy it. And then some of the poorest countries like Haiti, they've had mismanagement of soil for for like a century. And this is a country where people need to be growing their own food in a backyard garden. But you know what their problem is? They don't have any topsoil. They don't have any topsoil. So even if we gave them seeds, they can't even grow uh, their own food. All that aside, when I hear stuff like this, like I've just said, I go numb. It, it really, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, these numbers are, they're crazy. I, I can't wrap my head around that size of number. Um, and so, yeah, for me, the cost of groceries and maybe gas goes up, but the reality is I don't uh, buy less. I just spend a bit more. But God has a plan for our world. 
It's a good plan and it's his best plan and I'm gonna spoil, uh, spoil the end of this. His plan includes you and me. And so we find ourselves here in James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. And it says this. <clears throat> what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, hey, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe there's one God, hey, good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good work. My first thought when I read this was that, you know, that seems to contradict what Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and 4. Uh, Paul, Paul teaches that our being made right with God is, is based on faith, not through work. Not by obeying, or sorry, not by obeying the law, it's through faith. And Paul teaches um, that it's not our good deeds that make us acceptable to God, rather we're saved and justified by our faith. It kind of seems like a kind of a pretty significant contradiction. As I did some more reading, uh, perhaps it's, it's not an, a contradiction. Perhaps it's two sides of the same coin that were saved by faith and our faith is shown true by our good deeds. The fruit of our faith is good works in Christ that he's prepared in advance for us to do. So in verses 14 to 17, James is giving us an example of faith in action or what he calls good deeds. It's, it's taking action to help someone who's clearly in need. And James says, you know, it's just not enough to leave them with a blessing. You know, stay warm, keep well. Uh, we, we have to do something about it. In verse 17, James says, so you see, faith by itself, it, it's just not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's, it's dead and useless. And then in verses 18 to 20, it's a rhetorical device. It's a theoretical conversation between two Christians. And it goes like this. If you, if you want to argue that faith is all you need to demonstrate your salvation, if, if theological orthodoxy is sufficient for your salvation, then even God's enemies are orthodox. I mean, even the demons are monotheistic. 
They believe that God is God, but that's not what's at issue here. Faith is, and faith is defined by its object. And in the Bible, faith is described as a saving faith, meaning only a faith in Jesus Christ is a faith that saves. Now, James is a leader or the leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to his brothers and sisters. He's writing to fellow Jewish Christians, and in verse 21, he furthers his appeal to the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And verse 22 reads, so you see his faith, that is Abraham's faith, and his actions, they worked together. His actions made his faith complete or his actions made his faith perfect. This is another way of saying his actions made his faith mature. Our relationship with Jesus, our faith grows deeper and more mature only, only as we live in obedience to God. In fact, faith grows cold when it doesn't have works. Faith grows cold when we don't Live it out. These are good deeds, the things that God has prepared in advance for us to do, things that he's even commanded us to do. Now, we know the story of Abraham. We're probably, some of us are, at least are familiar with it. Um, it took a long time for his faith to mature, and it's very much the same for us. He experienced his ups and downs. He, he doubted um, God for a while. He, he lied about uh, who his wife was. Uh, he got involved in, in sexual immorality with his maidservant, Hagar. He wasn't a good father to his son, Ishmael. He had some serious sin issues. But his faith was maturing because even though he had numerous failures, he was training. He was training day by day. He wasn't trying. He was simply training day by day, walking with God. And if we were to read Abraham's story, we'd find it in Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 15, we would read that Abraham believed God and was so justified in the sight of God. But it was not until later in Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham's faith had matured through his works that people began to think of him as righteous also. See, his faith was growing it was deepening and maturing. And then in James chapter 2, verse 23, it points out, And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Abraham was even called a friend of God. So we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. So verse 23 in James 2, verse 23 is really... Genesis chapter 15 to 22 condensed right down into one verse. That Abraham would be called a friend of God. This ultimately would happen at the biggest test of his life when God asked him, commanded him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And all of the ups and downs, successes and failures came to result in this one moment. And Abraham obeyed God. He believed God would provide a way just as he had always up to that point, and God did. There was a ram caught in the thicket, and that ram took the place of his son. Abraham was called a friend of God 
because he was in right relationship with God. Then in verse 24, so you see we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Then as we read the text, something really interesting happens that's meant to grab our attention. James goes from using Abraham as an example of faith and good deeds to citing Rahab, the prostituted woman. Now, we know James is writing to a Jewish audience and he's using ancient Jewish rhetoric or the way that ancient Jewish people tried to convince each other of something. And, and if you were trying to make an argument from the scriptures and you're trying to convince somebody of something, you would cite as the most important person to make your argument as Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. They called him Father Abraham or our father Abraham. That was the ultimate name you could possibly quote. It was like the mic drop of arguments. Next, if you didn't quote Abraham in the history of Judaism, you might quote Moses, then Jacob, perhaps David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, not Rahab, the prostituted woman. If you're going to call a witness forward in ancient Israel, you, you first had to make sure they were Jewish, and then a man, and then someone important. But James calls a witness forward that is a woman. Now, if you're making this argument to a Jewish audience, you wouldn't cite a woman, and you wouldn't cite a non-Jewish person or a Gentile, which is what Rahab was. But all of that gets pushed aside because... Rahab is a prostituted woman, and this is his example of faith. Now, the story of Rahab is found in the Old Testament book of Joshua, and when the Canaanite, uh, Canaanites came searching for the Israelite spies, she hid them in her house and helped them escape the city, and ultimately, this woman was rewarded for her faith, and she and her family were spared the destruction that was to come. Rahab's also written about in Hebrews chapter 11, this like hall of faith chapter, great examples of faith and faithfulness. Now Rahab's actions were not the reason for her faith, they were a demonstration of it. It would have done her no good if, if she had, you know, said, you know, I, I believe these men are God's people and I believe in God's plan, but this is kind of messy. It's actually quite inconvenient and it's, Dangerous. I'm not going to get involved. If that had been the case, we would never have known about Rahab. But here she is, being talked about as one of the greatest examples of faith and faithfulness ever. So thank God she took action and exercised her faith. I mean, faith only counts when it's put into action. Faith is a verb. Faith counts when we believe it and then we live like it. And sometimes, sometimes we have to live like it even when we don't believe it. Finally, in verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Uh, this is the power of the good news, the power of the gospel at work. We're saved and justified through faith in Jesus, and the fruit of that salvation is good works. It's interesting 
to me anyhow, that James began his argument that faith without works is dead by using the example of, of someone who's in need of basic life necessities. I don't think it was a whim or an accident. God is deeply concerned about the poor and the poor in spirit. There are like 2,000 references in the Bible to the poor. Now, maybe the sheer number of references don't necessarily point to importance, okay? However, not only is God concerned about the poor, but Jesus would go so far as to say in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, truly, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When we help those who might be considered the least among us or less than ourselves, we are actually truthfully helping Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Children are in this category. Those experiencing homelessness and poverty are in that category. I would put newcomers to Canada in that category. Those who are on the outside looking in. Here in the book of James, we understand that faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good work. Good work like taking care of those most vulnerable among us in, in our world. And so, so what place do good works or do works have in the life of a follower of Jesus? They don't get us eternal life. They don't help us keep it. But they do show that we belong to Jesus and we're a part of his kingdom. What we do matters, friends. How we live matters, even the small stuff. That we would care for the poor and the vulnerable in our world matters, and it's one of those good works that Jesus himself is deeply invested in. Jesus cares very deeply about vulnerable people. People who are at the end of their rope people who are maxed out in their credit, burned out in life, broken in body, hopelessly addicted. I needed to hear that at that point in my life. I needed to hear that Jesus cared deeply about me and loved me deeply, and I had an experience of it, a very real experience of Jesus' love and forgiveness for me. It began to heal my broken heart. Jesus cares about the poor, both economically and spiritually. So we come to Compassion Canada, and we exist to release children from poverty in Jesus' name, and it's out of a response to the great commandment, go make disciples. Make disciples of everybody you know. And the great commission, love God and love people like you love yourself. So compassion is child-focused, Christ-centered, and church-based. That is, we love children, we love Jesus, and we love the local church. And that compassion, it's our desire that each child in our programs would be known, loved, and connected. And so we feel an urgent sense that we need to reach more children more quickly. The work we do, we call it holistic child development. We, we try to address the complete person, all of their needs, their physical needs, their social needs, emotional and spiritual. On the practical side, 
uh, each one of our frontline church partners. So if it was a church in Mexico, El Salvador, Uganda, Thailand, uh, when they join Compassion and partner with us, they will actually invite 250 to 350 children from the local community. It would be like your VBS that's coming up, right? Chaos. Absolute chaos. But they invite all these children, mostly unchurched, to their church, and these programs are almost exclusively run by volunteers. We'll have one staff person who's paid to kind of oversee the programming, and the rest are volunteers, much like yourselves. And then children between the ages of one and the ages of 18 will spend an average of about six hours a week after school at the church, where they're discipled in the way of Christ, and they're each assigned a tutor to help with their homework and to learn how to read and do math and some other things like that. They'll have um, supplementary food. There's often midweek meals, and the church is just a great place to hang out for them. It's a lot of fun. If a child needs medical or dental care, it's taken care of. It's holistic child development. So we're not just handing out food, we're not just handing out Bibles, we're doing both because, hey, both are important. And we believe that the root cause of poverty in all of its forms, okay, in all of its forms is a spiritual one. And I think if you've walked, walked with Christ for any length of time, we also know ourselves that we have a spiritual poverty. That's why we turn to God in our spiritual poverty. So we want to address the root cause of poverty care for the whole person. And I got to tell you overwhelmingly that when a child, not every child, but most will give their lives to Christ when they enter a compassion program. And then through the lifetime that they're in the program, they'll bring three or four other family members to Christ uh, along with them. And so there's this multiplier effect. And it's just average, everyday, ordinary people like yourselves doing VBS at their local church in a poor country, and they're just so dedicated, these volunteers. I want to honor my volunteer here tonight. Her name's Judy Myers. Judy's sponsored a number of children over the years for like the last 22 years, and it's just such a joy to work with her. I love having Judy. I love having you at the table. You're so knowledgeable. If you have any questions about almost any country that we're involved in, ask Judy. She'll be able to answer your questions and tell you a story. And so the primary way that compassion pays for holistic child development is through the sponsorship of individual children, which many of you do. Many of you do. I was just chatting with a few before the service, and they, they sponsor more than one, like way more than one, uh, which is very humbling for me to hear. So thank you to everyone who's sponsored and the letters you write. It means a lot. You know, poverty, it steals hope. It steals hope from people especially from children, from a young age. I think that's God's enemy's like, plan, is to crush the spirits of children so that when they grow up, they think, you know what, nobody cares about me, I'm worthless, so why should I care about myself and then just make a bunch of bad decisions? Poverty steals hope, but when you sponsor a child, it empowers them with opportunities and the message that there is hope for a better future and that, that hope is in Jesus. So if you already sponsor, like I said, thank you, sponsorship, it costs $47 a month. 
For an extra $10 for 57 a month, you would also provide for our urgent needs fund, which uh, goes to disaster relief. Or if we have a, a project, like maybe we have a, a water well we're trying to drill or a playground we're trying to build, and it just needs a bit of topping up, we, we draw from the urgent needs fund um, to do that. In the foyer, uh, you know the drill. There's a lot of photos on the table. You can take a look at that. But what I would say is, uh, before you get to our table, go to the VBS table and sign up and then come sponsor a child. Well, let's do that. Um, that sounds like a lot of fun. You know, sponsoring a child, it's like about $1.56 a day. I did some math on that. I had to use a calculator. But uh, it's less, less than a, a small coffee at Tim Hortons, and considerably less if you go to Starbucks. You may have heard this joke already, but if you do drink Starbucks, you may want to consider sponsoring a whole village this morning. That would... <laughs> we, we would be so blessed by that. In fact, Elvin, I know you're a star, but no, I don't know if you are. <laughs> no, you make it at home. <laughs> um, so in the back, in the foyer, you can choose a child, and then once you do, you can write them letters, and you're going to receive letters back. And oftentimes, if they're young, they'll even draw a picture for you. You can write your letters online. It's really easy. But in your letter, and even now as you write letters, I would encourage you to write a couple things. Really easy. You know, just, just tell them, you know what, I, wa I want you to know I'm praying for you. I want you to know I love you. And you know what? God loves you too. And finally, you're really special. You're just really special because God loves you. You know, those are absolutely life-giving words. I am 46 years old, and when my daughter, who's 10, gives me a big hug and tells me, Daddy, I love you so much, oh my goodness, my heart is full, right? We all need to hear it. We all need to hear that we're loved. It's so important. You remember at the start, I started off with a bunch of statistics, some very depressing ones, 719 million people living in extreme poverty on less than $2.15 a day. And it's overwhelming for me to think about that. And I think, I, I can't do anything about it. It's too big. I'm not even going to make a dent, not even a drop in the bucket. And then I'm reminded of something Mother Teresa said. She said, you know, if you can't feed a hundred, then feed just one. Then feed just one. I want to tell you a short story before I close. Small six-year-old girl in a Central American country. This is just at the start of the pandemic a few years back. Her mom lost her job to the pandemic and anxiety filled the home. It was palpable. How would they eat? How were they going to pay rent? And the little girl looks at her mom and says, Mommy, don't worry. The church is going to help us. Her mom had her trouble hiding her lack of hope. But later that afternoon, there's a knock at the door. And there was a couple of people from the local church with a food hamper. And they said, your daughter is in one of our programs. We love her so much and we love you. And here's a food hamper and it's going to last you about three weeks. And when it runs out, there's going to be more on the way and more after that. We got you. And they left. And the little girl screams at the top of her lungs, See, Mommy, I told you the church would help us. Now, this only happened because this little girl was in a compassion program at her local church. And that's the difference your sponsorship makes. And it's so cool because that family probably actually has no idea who compassion is. They just know it's the local church. And so the local church gets to be the hero. Um, Jesus gets to be the hero. If only we had faith like a child.
Personally, I feel called to serve the lost, the least, and the broken and introduce people to Jesus. And my life verses Matthew 25 to 40, or verse 40, and the king will say, truly I tell you, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. Jesus identifies so closely with the poor and broken that he would consider himself to be one of them. And so serving those in need is exactly like serving Jesus himself. And if you want to get to know Jesus better, get to know vulnerable people better. And I got to tell you, it's messy and it's dirty and it's hard work, but it's kingdom work and you'll be blessed for it. Thank you so much for having me, for sponsoring children, as many of you already do. I haven't counted, but I think it's got to be in the hundreds for your church. I tell you, God desires that none would be left in, outside in the cold, that none would go hungry or without clothes, that none should be unloved. And so regardless of whether or not you sponsor a child this morning, let your faith be shown true by the way you live and by the way you treat other people because just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.